wait, that's what it says every time. Turn with me to Matthew 6, and let's read verses 5 to 8. Jesus is speaking. He says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, as you will recall from our studies over the last several months through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been contrasting true righteousness with false righteousness, in particular, the false righteousness typified by the scribes and the Pharisees. And here in our passage, he tells them that their religious life is inadequate. And he picks out three illustrations of how out of their religious life of how they have failed and they are in the areas of giving praying and fasting which are all religious activities and as we saw in verse verses one to four their giving was hypocritical as we will see when we get to verses 16 to 18 their fasting was hypocritical and in this passage here in verses five to eight we see that he says their praying was hypocritical. So every dimension of their religious experience involved hypocrisy. And Jesus is pointing out that God's standards for his kingdom are the genuine standards of true piety, not the false standards of their pharisaical pretense. And so he tackles them on the matter of prayer. And he does so by pointing out that their prayers are defective in both the intended audience and in the prayer's content. And first of all, we see that their, their false audience, it was other people. Look at verse 5 again. He says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. You know, prayer was a major issue among the Jews. Uh, prayer was a central factor in the practice of their religion. Uh, but unfortunately, almost every dimension of their religious life had been corrupted by their rabbinic traditions. And so most Jews were completely befuddled about how to pray uh, in a way that honored God. And so, first of all, their prayers had become ritualized. Uh, the wording and forms of prayers were set, and then they simply read or repeated them from memory. They could recite those prayers with almost no attention being given to what was said. Uh, they were routine, semi-conscious religious exercise. And that approach replaced the reality of a heart pouring out its pleas to God. Secondly, Jewish prayer life was corrupted by the development of special prayers for special occasions. Uh, they had prayers for everything. They had prayers for light, prayers for darkness, 
prayers for fire, prayers for lightning, prayers for seeing a new moon, prayers for a comet, prayers for rain, uh, prayers for a tempest, prayer for the sea, prayers for lakes, prayers for rivers. They had prayers when you received good news. They had a prayer for when you received bad news. Uh, they had prayers when you left a city. They had a prayer for when you were on the road. And they had a prayer when you entered the next city. Uh, so they had a prayer for everything. And, and so you had to find out what the prayer was and learn it. And whenever something happened, you rattled off that prayer that was fitting for that particular event. The third way their prayer life was corrupted is that prayer developed into something that you only did at specific times. And apart from those times, you just didn't do it. Uh, and so prayer was set to certain hours. And then they decided, fourthly, that it was uh, spiritual to pray long prayers. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with a long prayer if it's a genuinely sincere prayer. Uh, there's something wrong with a long prayer when you're trying to impress people with your pious sounding words and your great theology and your spiritual fluency and, or whatever. The fifth fault with the Jewish prayer life was pointed out by Jesus in Matthew 6, 7, and that is meaningless repetition, patterned after those of pagan religions. The pagan approach to prayer was that you kept repeating yourself until the God you were praying to got so weary of hearing you that he just did what you wanted him to do. Uh, they were repetitiously calling on God. The, but the worst fault of all that the Jews committed in their prayer life, their sixth fault, was that Jesus uh, mentioned that they prayed so that they may be seen by men, not heard by God. Uh, the word translated may be seen means to be made visible, uh, to reveal, to bring into light, to shine. They wanted to be visible. They wanted to shine forth their supposed piosity to the crowds that passed by. And that was the wrong motive. And that's what Jesus wants to deal with here, the motive of our prayers. You see, there's something you need to understand about prayer. Prayer is not so sacred that Satan doesn't invade it. Uh, sin will dog you right into the throne room of God. Uh, pride follows us into the very presence of God, and it's so sad that it does. In those quiet moments when we should enter his presence and worship him in purity, we find ourselves being tempted to worship ourselves, uh, to, to uh, pray in a way that impresses the ones who are listening around us. Uh, there's no sacred ground for Satan. He invades it all. And so the lesson for us is don't think that because you've gone to the place of prayer that you've avoided the enemy. He will be there dogging your footsteps. Uh, sin defiles our deepest devotions. And then Jesus says, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray. And the issue is not that they stood in the position that they were praying while standing. That's normal Jewish posture for prayer. Uh, in fact, the Old Testament teaches three prayer postures. Uh, first, there was kneeling. Second, there was complete being lying prostrate. Uh, and then third, there was perhaps just as common was standing. And so that's not the issue. And praying in the synagogue that he mentions here is not the issue because that was a normal place where a lot of people stood and prayed. Uh, but a man could easily succumb to the temptation of praying in a manner that was designed to impress the listeners, and that is to use acceptable cliches and, and uh, the appropriate sentiments and the resounding tones and 
well-pitched fervency, all in a manner to win approval and perhaps even to be thought more highly than the guy who led the congregation in prayer the, the previous week. Uh, now, there are some who come along and say, well, the issue is that they're praying on the street corners out in public. Well, that's not a major issue either, because uh, if you remember what we talked about from four weeks ago now, um, the if you happen to be going down the street and it was time to pray, you stopped and prayed wherever you were. Uh, it was very normal. You would commonly see Jews praying all over the place. If they couldn't make it to the temple at the third, sixth, or ninth hour of the day, or if they couldn't get to a synagogue, it really didn't matter where they were. They would just stop and pray. And they could stand there and pray very quietly, very unobtrusively. Uh, and they could say their prayers, hardly anyone would notice. Uh, that would be a very normal course of life, but that isn't the issue either. Uh, however, there's a hint here that something is wrong uh, in their praying, because if you recall, I pointed out that Jesus changes the word he uses for streets here. Uh, back in verse 2, when he talked about giving to the poor in the streets, he used a word that refers to narrow streets or alleys. But here in verse 5, he uses a word for a wide street, a boulevard, a main road. Now that's a hint of something. And it doesn't just say in the streets. Where does he say they pray? On the street corners. Uh, so he's, he, what he's saying is when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand up in the synagogue and pray and outside on the, the corner, the biggest intersection in town. Uh, there wouldn't be anything wrong with praying at a big wide intersection if you happened to be there when it was time to pray. But there, and there wouldn't, be praying wrong with praying any place that you just happen to be. Uh, that's not the issue. The issue is so that they may be seen by men. Uh, everything else up to this point would have been all right. But the point is that they purposely went out to those places to pray so that others would see how pious they were. And what our Lord is dealing with is this. When you pray publicly, make sure you're communing with God, not performing for men. Uh, Self-centered prayer to call attention to yourself has no place. Scripture doesn't condemn public prayer. It only condemns self-centered prayer. Uh, every time we succumb to the temptation to pray in a manner so as to receive the praise of others for how wonderfully we pray, how spiritually meaningful it sounds, how religious we seem to be, we receive the same reward that the Jews received, uh, the human praise that we deserve. And that's all we get. That's our full reward. There's nothing else. And certainly no answered prayer from the Lord himself. So that, that was the, when the, how they prayed to those the, their false audience, other people. And after commenting on that, Jesus then explains the prayer's true audience, which is God. And he answers the question, how do you not pray a self-centered prayer? And this is where we stopped all those weeks ago, and let's pick back up with verse 6, and we'll look at prayer's true audience, which is God. He says, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The basic meaning of prayer is communion with God, and if he's not involved, there's only a pretense of prayer. Uh, not only must he be involved, but he must be centrally involved. 
Prayer is God's provision. It's God's idea, not man's. There, there could be no prayer if God did not condescend to listen to and speak with us, and we could not know how to pray had he not chosen to instruct us. Jesus' teaching here is simple in contrast to the complicated and difficult traditions that the Jews had developed. He begins by saying, but you when you pray. Notice that he doesn't prescribe a time. Uh, he doesn't say you need to pray at 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m., like all of your Jewish friends do. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with praying at those times, but you can pray anytime you wish. Uh, there's no required time or occasion. His point is here is simply that whenever you pray, no matter what time it may be, here's what you need to do. And then he says, go into your inner room. The, the word used here refers to a room located in the inner parts of a house or building that was used as a closet or a storeroom or a bedroom. Uh, it was a place of privacy. It, it might even be the room where you kept your most valued possessions uh, to protect them from thieves. It was the most private place in your home. And then he says, close the door. Uh, that is, make it as private as possible. And then pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, Jesus isn't saying, don't pray until you're locked in a closet. Uh, that's not his point. His point is privacy in your personal prayer. Uh, it doesn't have to literally be in a closed inner room. Uh, it can be in your car when you're driving. But don't close your eyes when you do that. <laughs> be like the Middle Eastern Christians who always pray with their eyes open. Uh, it can be when you're out on your morning walk. I often do that. Uh, I listen to the scriptures while I walk, and I pray about things as the Word brings things to my mind. Uh, it's just me in my own little secret closet out there, even though I'm walking down the street. Uh, the, the closet can be while you're standing on a street corner if you're unpretentious and silent and not drawing attention to yourself. Uh, on the other hand, Chrysostom said that there were some people who pray in secret, but they pray so loud that everyone down the hall hears them praying in secret. Um, the idea is attitude. Uh, John MacArthur explains it this way, quote, The primary point Jesus makes does not have to do with location, but with attitude. If necessary, Jesus says, go to the most secluded private place you can find so that you will not be tempted to show off. Go there and shut the door. Shut out everything else so you can concentrate on God and pray to your Father. Do whatever you have to do to get your attention away from yourself and others and on him and him alone. End quote. You see, much of our prayer life should be in secret. It, it's to be very personal. God is in secret and he reads the secrets of our heart. Uh, you know, I, I'm so glad that God sees in secret. And I'm also glad God is in secret because no matter what I tell him, he never tells anyone else. Uh, I, I assume you're glad about that. <laughs> um, you know, I can tell something to someone else, and even though I may say, now, now, please don't pass that on, there's many times it comes back to me from some other source. 
but I can talk to God and tell him everything there is to know, and it's always a secret between him and me. Uh, I can pour out my heart to God, and he sees the secret of my heart. Many things we share with God in our private prayers are for him alone to know, and he never betrays a confidence. Now, let me just mention as an aside that if you're using the 1995 New American Standard Bible, you'll notice that it says, and your father who sees what is done in secret. Those words, what is done, what do you notice about them? They're italicized, meaning that they're not there in the Greek text. Uh, but the translators added them to help clarify the meaning here. Those words didn't appear in the 1977 New American Standard Bible, but for some reason the translators followed the lead of the NIV and added them starting with the 95 edition. Uh, they're still in the 2020 edition. Uh, I'm really not sure that they're all that helpful because they speak of a completed action, uh, of something that has been done, and so they can, they can be misinterpreted to mean that God sees what we actually do but not what we think. Uh, I'm sure that every one of the translators would tell you that what is done in secret includes our thoughts. Uh, but someone who isn't very mature in Christ and isn't all that biblically astute may not recognize that when they read the text. So for that reason, I, I kind of wish they'd left them out um, and just translated the text exactly as it appears in Greek, where it says, and your father who sees in secret. Um, that's the way the ESV and the NET and the King James Version and the New King James Version all translate it. Uh, I think that carries the idea that God sees everything which occurs in secret, whether a thought or an actual action, much better. Uh, but those are just my thoughts, and I'm not a scholarly translator. Uh, it isn't a major point, and there may not be more than two or three people who misinterpret it, but I just happen to like the text better without the addition of those words. So pray in secret. Maybe for you that means going into your inner room, but it surely means more than that. It means that even though, even if you're in a public place praying, such as the church auditorium that's filled with believers, or sitting in a crowd at some social event, or driving your car, or at your work, or walking down the street, or that whenever and wherever you are, your communion and prayer with God should not be a display. It should be the, the quiet, secret communication between you and him that knows nothing of an audience, even though the biggest audience in the world should be there. Now, again, don't think that Jesus is forbidding or prohibiting public prayer. Not at all. If he was, the early church most certainly misunderstood him because there are numerous examples in the book of Acts of public prayer. As we said before, the issue is our attitude in prayer. Uh, to understand what Jesus meant, I think we need to listen to the words of Donald Carson. Here's what he writes. He says, quote, We will comprehend Jesus' point better if we each ask ourselves these questions. Do I pray more frequently and more fervently when alone with God than I do in public? Do I love the secret place of prayer? Is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? If the answers are not enthusiastic affirmatives, we fail the test and fall under Jesus' condemnation. We are hypocrites, end quote.
You see, when, when you pray with a sincere, humble heart, Jesus says at the end of verse 6 that God the Father will reward you. Do you want to be rewarded by God or by men? Uh, do you want men to hear your prayer or do you want God to hear your prayer? Uh, because if you want men to hear your prayer, God doesn't hear it. People say, you know, I've been praying so long and I pray and it seems that God doesn't answer. Maybe it's because you're praying in a world in a way to show others how prayerful you seem to be. Uh, you're actually praying so that they will think you're righteous rather than really talking to God. Uh, maybe when you tell others about how much you've been praying about something, you're actually virtue signaling to them, subtly letting them know what a committed praying believer you are. Now, don't misconstrue what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that every time you share with someone about how you've been praying for a long time about something and you're still waiting for God to answer, that that means that you're seeking their praise for your faithfulness in prayer. That may not be what you seem, what you mean at all. Uh, your motives may be entirely proper, but I'm saying that you need to be careful about how you communicate such things to others. Because if you tell one person that, and they commend you for your faithfulness in prayer. I can guarantee you that your fallen flesh and Satan will immediately say to you, hey, did you hear that? They were impressed that you pray so faithfully, even though God doesn't answer you. Maybe you should tell some more people how diligently you've been praying. They'll be impressed too. And it can easily degenerate into a prideful thing. And then you'll have your reward from men, not from God. If you're to be rewarded from God, then you're to be lost in the secrecy of communion with God. And he who is in secret and who sees the secrets of your heart binds himself together with you. And then it won't matter if someone should happen to hear you. Remember, Daniel prayed with his windows open, didn't he? But he talked to God. Jesus said the temple was the house of prayer and masses of people went there. They were to talk to God, not to each other. There's nothing wrong with group prayer so long as your heart is pure. Now, many people wonder, well, what's the reward that God gives to those who pray with pure motives from a pure heart? Well, Jesus gives no idea in this passage what God's reward will be. He doesn't mean that God will necessarily answer that prayer in the way which the one offering it wishes he would answer. I mean, many have prayed for God to physically heal a family member, but that family member wasn't physically healed. So that's certainly not what he means. Uh, but what will happen is that those who are sincerely and humbly praying to the Lord will find that their prayer becomes very much a not-my-will-but-your-will, Lord, kind of prayer. Their prayer becomes conformed to the will of God. And when God answers that prayer, whether it's a yes or a no, they will be satisfied and blessed with his answer. So the important truth is that God will faithfully and unfailingly bless those who come to him in sincerity. Without question, the Lord will reward them. Those who pray insincerely and hypocritically will receive the world's reward. 
but those who pray sincerely and humbly will receive God's reward. So then we've seen the audience of prayer. We've seen the false audience, which is others, and the true audience, which is God. And now we come to the content of prayer. And once again, it has two parts. False content, which is meaningless repetition, and true content, which are sincere requests. So we'll begin with the false content in verse 7. Before I do, let me just pause for a moment and ask, are there any questions or comments about what we've just finished? Okay. Well, let's read verse 7, the false content of prayer. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Now, as we've already mentioned, the particular fault which Jesus singles out here is that of meaningless repetition. That practice was common in many pagan religions of that day, as it is in many religions today, including some branches of Christendom. The words use meaningless repetition is from a single compound word in the Greek. It's a very rare word occurring only here in the New Testament and only two other times in all the rest of Greek literature. It is an onomatopoeic poetic, an onomatopoeic word. Uh, you remember that word from your English grammar? What's onomatopoeia? Yeah, it's a word that makes the sound they're intending to describe, such as buzz, or boom, or tick-tock, or ding-dong. Um, and this word has an onomatopoetic part to it. It is this word, baralogeo, uh, which is composed of two words, the first being bada, and the second being logeo. Um, the word logeo, is the Greek word which means to speak, uh, to say. And the first half is the onomatopoetic part, bada. Uh, if someone was just babbling on and on, or if he was speaking some foreign language that they didn't understand, the Greeks would say that he was going bada, bada, bada. It's like us saying that someone who's droning on and on is going yada, yada, yada. Okay? Uh, so they put bada and legeo together and produced a word which means to stammer, to babble, to repeat the same words again and again. The idea is that the person is speaking words repeatedly without thinking. And so Jesus says when you pray, don't babble on and on with mindless, meaningless, repetitious terms like the Gentile pagans do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. You see, the pagans thought that if they named all their gods and addressed their petitions to each of them and then repeated themselves a few times, they would have a better chance of receiving an answer. They thought that their gods would get tired of listening to them and eventually answer them if they just continually repeated themselves. Now, I hate to say keep saying, please don't misunderstand, but I have to because many have done so. Jesus is not forbidding you from praying about the same thing more than once. 
There's nothing wrong with repetition if it's done with the right heart attitude. If you recall, Jesus, I mean, it was Paul who said that he prayed three times for the Lord to remove his thorn in the flesh, which was a messenger from Satan. Uh, in Matthew 26, 44, Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says that after twice going out and finding the disciples sleeping, he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. So when it is the honest cry of a burdened heart, it is legitimate. When it is the mindless repetition of a pseudo-spiritual incantation, it's meaningless. We don't have to wake up God to get his attention. Nor is it necessary for us to be to constantly be informing him about things as if he didn't know. Uh, that was a common practice in pagan religions, even in the New Testament. I realize that they weren't praying specifically, but in Acts 19, it says that the mob in Ephesus was upset at Paul and his companions because they were leading so many people to Christ. And so they spent two hours screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You can imagine the frenzy and the lather they were in after that. And that was the pattern of their worship also. Buddhists spin prayer wheels, which are wooden cylinders on a spindle with prayers written on the outside of the wheel. And they spin the wheel, and supposedly every time the, the wheel spins around, the prayer is offered, and they claim it has the same meritorious effect as orally reciting the prayers. So they do that to gain the benefit of repeating the prayers without having to actually repeat the prayers. Roman Catholics light candles, and supposedly as long as the candle is lit, their prayers are continually ascending to the throne of God with the same constant prayer. And they use the rosary, a bracelet-like string of beads, to, to repeat a series of prayers, most commonly the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and Glory Be. Uh, they will do what they call saying the rosary, and that means they say one Our Father, ten Hail Marys, and one Glory Be. Uh, it's nothing more than meaningless repetition. Growing up, I would occasionally spend a week during the summer with my maternal grandparents, who were Pentecostals. And I'm very glad that my mom warned me about what to expect when I went to church with them because watching a bunch of people babbling in some supposedly unknown tongue, repetitiously repeating the same meaningless sounds could have been quite frightening for an 11, 12 year old. Uh, it's just a cacophony of unintelligible noise. And they go on and on saying the same empty, senseless sounds over and over again, all the while claiming that this was some kind of heavenly prayer language. Let me ask you something. If the Lord personally appeared to you and said, I want to have a 15-minute appointment with you tomorrow for us to sit down together and let you tell me what's on your heart, would you spend that 15 minutes repeating the same things over and over and over again to him? Of course not. You wouldn't sit there and mumble a bunch of words repetitiously. You wouldn't tell him about one or two things and then just repeat them over and over again to him for 15 minutes. Instead, you would prepare a list of things in advance of the appointment so that you wouldn't forget anything. 
and you would tell him what was important to you. You would cram in everything you could and you would make sure you didn't waste words. You would thank him for all he'd done for you. You would beg him for his forgiveness of your sin and you would tell him all the burdens of your heart. You would plead with him to do something about certain issues and problems or your, that you and your family and friends were facing and you would tell him how you feel about those things as clearly as you could. And folks, that's exactly what you are to do when you pray to him now. Your thoughts and words should be precise, exact, heartfelt, passionate, and bring the real burdens of your soul to him. Keep a list of things to pray about. There are those who seem to think prayer should, that it must be spontaneous if it is to be spirit-led. That's hogwash. Make yourself a list of those things you want to pray about. As you go along, that list is going to get longer and longer. So don't try to pray through the entire list in a single setting. Uh, Single sitting, uh, pray for certain matters one day and others on the next day until you work your way through the list. Don't treat prayer indifferently like the pagans do. Plan for your prayer time. But don't turn it into some kind of incantation that you just mindlessly repeat. The pagans felt they would be heard for their many words. They turned their minds off and just rattled it out. And they thought that if they just kept saying it and saying it and saying it, God would finally listen to them. God doesn't need that. He knows what you need. You don't have to badger him. And don't try to force him into a corner. Don't try to bargain with him in prayer. Lord, if you'll get me that job I want, I'll give you 20% of everything I make. Or God, if you'll heal my child, I promise I'll never miss church again. Those are what I call Jephthah prayers. The, it's when you make a vow and a prayer that the consequence of obedience is more than you can bear, just like Jephthah did in Judges 11. Trying to bargain with God in prayer is really behaving like you are God's equal. It's as if you're sitting at the table with him looking him in the eye and trying to make the deal of the century. But you're never God's equal. And you don't have to try to force him to react by constantly, incessantly praying just to get rid of you. It isn't the length of your prayer. It isn't the repetition of your prayer. It's the purity of your prayer. And that brings us to the next point, which is the true content of prayer, namely sincere requests. Look at verse 8. So then, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God knows your needs. You're not badgering or beating God into submission. So then what is prayer? If we're not informing God, and we're not really letting Him know things He doesn't already know, what is prayer? Well, let me tell you, prayer is more than anything else, is sharing the needs and the burdens and the hungers of my heart with a God who cares. A God who already knows what we need, but who wants us to ask him. It's communing with him. It isn't about getting things. 
It isn't about forcing God to do something. It's just opening my soul to one who cares and who desires to commune with me. Martin Luther said, by our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are him. John Stott said, the purpose of prayer is not to inform or persuade God, but to come before him sincerely, purposefully, consciously, and devotedly. Prayer is, folks, is giving God the opportunity to manifest his power, his majesty, his might, his love, his providence, his care, and his concern. And then because we have spent time in prayer with him, when we see him manifest those things, we will give glory and praise to him. In conclusion, what's Jesus saying? He is saying when you pray, first of all, pray with a devoted heart. That is a pure motive, seeking only the glory of God. Second, pray with a humble heart, seeking only the attention of God, not men. <clears throat> Third, pray with a confident heart, knowing full well that God already knows all that you need. And then with simple childlike faith, you simply take your heart to him and await the majestic display of his glorious response. If you pray in those terms, the end of verse 6 says, He will reward you. D.L. Moody once said that he received so many blessings from God that one day he prayed a very short prayer. It was this, God, stop. Amen. That was it. May the day come in our own lives when we might say, God, please stop because I'm drowning in your blessings. It can if we learn to pray as Jesus teaches here. Well, as you can see, I'm done. But I'm not letting you go. Because after a lesson like this, what are we going to do? We're going to spend time in prayer. So I'm going to shut off this first. Okay. I hope. I hope I'm shutting it off.